One day, when this is all over, we'll look back at what COVID-19 revealed about our society. One of the things we'll notice is what people were not willing to sacrifice. The parts of our lives that we consider essential, even if the people in charge do not. And we'll reflect on this when we remember why and where people were willing to break the rules, to defy police and public health officials, and to essentially say, this right here is more important to me than not just my own safety, but more important to me than everybody's safety. And for some families, that meant contact with the grandparents or loved ones. And for some jerks, that meant going to a barbecue restaurant or a gym. But I think it's fair to say that after a year of this, if you went back and plotted where exactly the most public anti-lockdown actions were found in North America, churches would be at or near the top of the list. Just listen. This Alberta church that has openly defied public health orders for months has officially been shut down. Singing, chanting, and honking. Those are some of the sights and sounds seen outside the fenced-off church Sunday. And then the situation escalates. I don't believe it was right to attack the fence. People parked without permission on the neighboring Enoch Cree Nation land. A lot of, you know, racial slurs being thrown at us. That was from Grace Life Church in Alberta last weekend. It was quite a scene. Protesters tore down fencing, vandalized a car, and acted not particularly Christian. But it makes sense. First of all, in the big picture, because the rise of the religious right, especially in the United States, but also here, has become linked with defying the government and flaunting public health measures. But it's not just that. It's not just the extremes. The protesters who were at Grace Life are not the only kind of worshippers in a pandemic. I don't go to church at all, but I know people who do. I know people who go a lot. And yes, they've complied with public health measures, but for them, church is an essential part of their lives. They are lost without it, and that leads to, yes, taking dangerous risks to get what they consider essential. Should they be allowed to do that? Science says no, but religion and science aren't often on the same page these days. Like I said, though, I don't go to church, so it's not what I think here that matters. So we'll ask someone who does go and writes about it. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Michael Corrin is an Anglican cleric. He's a columnist, a broadcaster. He's written 17 books, most of them on the topic of faith. He is a man of faith, but also a journalist. And so we thought he might be smarter than me on this one. Hey, Michael. (laughs) Hello there. I doubt that, but I'll try. Well, why don't, um, for our first question, can you kind of just sketch out from the point of view of somebody who is who is Christian, what happened at Grace Life Church in Alberta over the past week? Well, the ch- this is not a typical church. Uh, the, the problem, one of the many problems, I suppose, of communicating the Christian faith to the wider public is that, with all due respect, the, uh, the, the loudest splashing is often at the shallowest end of the swimming pool. Mm. And that this is a very conservative church. Um, some would call it fundamentalist. Certainly, it, it's, it's very right-wing. Um, and doesn't represent most Christians in this country. 
from the very beginning, I would suggest, and, other, and some other churches like them, were very uncomfortable with, with the notion of COVID. Um, there are some people involved with the church who would deny that COVID is a reality. Not all of them, but some would. They saw the government intervention, the lockdown, um, as being quite sinister at times. And again, I'm, I'm making general points here. This is not everyone in the church. Some saw government conspiracy. Some thought there was something like the Great Reset behind it all. They were worried about vaccinations as a strong anti-vaccination movement around people who support this church too. There are others who say, well, COVID is real, but our freedom to worship, our need to assemble in a church together without a mask, without social distancing, is more important than our, our safety and our lives. That didn't take into account the fact that if there are infections, you then infect other people. But also it was it was so, I think, selfish and full of pride, which is ironic because pride is the great sin. Because no one in government, uh, especially in Alberta, where there are many Christians in the government, and the Premier is a, a conservative, uh, no one was trying to close down worship. It was simply trying to protect people from the virus. Uh, and these restrictions have been placed on churches throughout Canada. Um, I, I'm part of a large church in Burlington, Ontario. We've held online services for the longest time. Our numbers are up, if anything. We conduct phone ministry where we're constantly working with people. Worship is not being restricted. Assembly as it was is being restricted for the sake of public health on a temporary basis. Well, I'm glad you made that point to start with. Uh, and I'm glad you also made the point about, you know, not trying to speak for everyone in that church uh, and, and there being so many different denominations around this. But I would ask you, why do you think that we've seen uh, so much of the anti-lockdown protests um, here for sure, but also uh, and more predominantly in the United States around uh, the right to assemble inside a church? You know, that's a fight that has come up again and again over the last year. It, it's true. It's not confined to churches. Uh, there have been problems with Hasidic Jewish communities in uh, in Montreal, in London, England, in New York, in in the U.S. You're right. Yes, I mean there it's almost a, a self-imposed separateness. We've seen it in Israel too. I mean, Israel has cut very well in terms of uh, COVID, but the ultra orthodox community there's a constant friction there, and we've seen it in some parts of, of the Muslim world. Although I've been quite impressed at how many have actually uh, really listened to what is going on and acted responsibly. What has happened in Christianity, and it's it's mainly the evangelical church, not exclusively. On the right wing of Roman Catholicism, you see something similar. The Pope, I think, has been very responsible. Most cardinals have. But there are more conservative Catholic churches that are extremely anti-lockdown. Uh, if you go to some of their, their websites, you'll see this. They're very angry at uh, the cardinals in this country, in Canada. They're very angry with the Pope. But it's really the evangelical the evangelical world. And, and the... Evangelicalism is conservative by nature, but it's not always conservative. There are more progressive elements within it. There are quite a lot of mainstream elements. But on the particularly conservative wing of what is already a conservative theology, there's a whole assembly, a whole stew of ideas. One of the reasons why 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. They believe that government is always ethical and moral. Uh, they would argue, for example, abortion, uh, equal marriage, government imposed these on us, that these are not of God. Mm -hmm. And they would say that their commitment to God and, and, and to the worship of God 
in a church is more important than their link to government. And they've bought in exponentially in the past 10 years in particular to the idea that there is um, a great war, a great conflict going on between good and evil, and that increasingly government is not on the side of good. All of these things combine. Uh, they look at any example they can think of, think of, uh, of where government may be trying to control people. And COVID is a prime example because they can then say, well, even if it is real, the way the government is acting um, is not ethical. They'll look at vaccinations and there are conspiracy theories about, about satanic identification. This might sound bizarre, but believe me, uh, they're all around. Uh, then we're, we're, when we're, we receive a vaccination, we can be identified. We're being labeled. This is in the book of Revelation. It's the mark of the beast. You're receiving the mark of the beast. Right. They'll also argue that aborted fetuses are being used in the production um, of, uh, of vaccines, although the Pope has said it's perfectly acceptable. But of course, these are evangelicals. There's, there's fear. There's paranoia. We can't rationalize all of this because by its nature, it's not rational. But it, it all plays into the idea that the world is changing in a direction they do not approve of. There must be a reason behind that. For a secular right-wing conservative, it's anger. For someone who has a strong religiosity, uh, it becomes part of a, a spiritual war. And I see very little that is Christian about this. Much of it is influenced by, by something, I think, which is entirely different, but they cloak it in Christianity. Which of the two comes first? Is it the political thought uh, of of these sorts of churches that then leads them to interpret the Bible in ways that will set them against the lockdown? Or does this actually come from religion first and, and it puts them against what the government is telling them? It's a very good question, actually. I think a lot of people who attend these sort of churches go there because they have a conservative political ideology. Uh, but others, if they're raised in, in a strictly evangelical home, the, the politics of their religion are inevitable. Now, politics and religion have always mixed, uh, but not necessarily of the right. Social democracy in this country, the NDP, what, became, what was before the NDP, but was formed heavily by nonconformist Christians, by, by more progressive evangelicals. The Labour Party in Britain, it was always said, owed much more to Methodism than to Marxism. Uh, so there is no reason why Christianity should be of the right. I would argue Christianity by its nature is actually very left-wing, but that, that's, that's another issue. But I, I think that they're, they're symbiotic. They, they, they really they support each other. They're attracted to conservative theology because of their conservative politics, or they're attractive to conservative politics because of their conservative theology. I don't in entirely know. What I do know is there are people who have no pretense of, of faith who are now being attracted to this cause and they're traveling to Edmund to, to support the church to either exploit it or show their political support, even though they're not people of faith. How do you think that uh, various levels of government, and, and speak to maybe whichever ones you want, have handled uh, matters of faith during this pandemic and you know the, the right to assemble or right to worship or whatever you want to call it? Have they addressed the community's concerns at large? Yeah, I think they have. I mean, I, I, I know because I spoke to people who are involved about some of the consultations in Ontario. And what surprised many Anglicans, Roman Catholics, Presbyterians, Lutherans, United Church leaders, is how quickly the Premier of Ontario was willing to open, to a certain degree, open churches. 
And I think that's because he was heavily influenced by uh, a relatively small group of conservative evangelicals who also, was it a coincidence, campaigned very heavily for his election and still support him. Um, so if anything, the government was being too open with churches. But generally, I think there's been a, a conversation. There are there are constant consultations with church leaders. Um, I think there's been a, an empathy. No politician wants to alienate any part of a voting bloc. Uh, and when it comes to Christians, uh, particularly conservatives, uh, because evangelicals and more conservative Catholics do vote conservative. But in general, at a, at a federal level, even though it's not really federally applied, there are many Christians. I mean, uh, the prime minister is a, a Roman Catholic and regards himself as, as a Roman Catholic. These are people who attend church. I mean, unless you see huge world conspiracy, this great war on religion, take, which some of these people do, unless you believe that nonsense, why would the government be doing this? It hurts it in all sorts of ways. So I think that government has been quite understanding. But good Lord, how many occasions, in what places do people gather in large numbers singing and communicating and hugging? Well, generally not when you go shopping. It's usually when you're at church. Of course, you have to restrict numbers. Look, I, I'm I'm going to a wedding quite soon and the church is allowed 15%. It contains 450 people. There'll be 40 people there. Um, we'll all be wearing a mask and, and, and distance. It's not ideal, but it's a compromise at a time of plague when people are dying. So the central command of Christianity, the central command of Christianity, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you do love your neighbor as yourself, you will sacrifice to a certain degree, and it's not that great a sacrifice, so as to make sure that particularly the old and the vulnerable and the sick will not die, will not be in, in terrible circumstances. And I, I must say again, we're not being told we can't worship. This is, this is not the police raiding your home when you're reading your Bible. Right. I mean, these people are claiming, I've seen persecution. I, I, I've I have held people in my arms weeping when they tell me about their slaughtered family in Baghdad when the church was raided and people were murdered. I have, I'm looking at them right now, I have two spent bullets from a church in Baghdad where there was a terrorist attack and dozens of people were killed. That's persecution. Not being told, your church is open, but instead of having it full, you have to wear a mask and they have to be 15% of total capacity. That's a reasonable compromise. The church in Edmonton is saying, to hell, and I use that phrase advisedly, to hell with that, we'll do exactly what we did before, and we don't care about anybody else. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is, first of all, because we've spoken about this kind of stuff before, and I know uh, I know you're really empathetic with it, um, but second of all, because I saw you uh, on Twitter speaking with some of the folks who are really angry um, that the province was closing Grace Life and, you know, you were engaging with them. And how do you find common ground with those folks? And what, I guess, can fellow Christians do to try to talk this down a little bit? It's very difficult. I mean, I, I try to use Twitter responsibly and, and um, I've got a fair platform, quite, quite a lot of followers. And I do block people if they're just obsessively abusive and dishonest. For example, there's a campaign right now to claim that suicides have, have, have gone up by 300%. It's a complete lie. It's not true, but it's being put out as propaganda. You, you just can't allow that. You can't empower that sort of nonsense. But especially over the weekend, there was a huge number of people 
who were writing to me. And, well, in all honesty, um, I don't think I made much progress with those people who were angry. They wrote to me, you never know exactly who they are, but in defending that church, they were abusive. Often they were insulting. They were terribly rude. Uh, I was saying nothing unreasonable, but they were just angry people. And it did seem to me that if they did worship the Prince of Peace, if they did worship the gentle Rabbi Jesus, it didn't come across in their social media comments. But of course, on Twitter, when you write, you're responding to one person, but you know you're being read by thousands of other people. And often that's what you're really doing and that's what you're thinking of. But I have to admit, it, it can be very difficult and hard not to be angry sometimes, especially when if you're a cleric and you see on a daily basis people who are really suffering and you speak to people who are working as nurses and doctors and they're almost shouting, they're so angry because they see what is going on. When a group of people say, we don't care, we have it in our head that, that God is telling us to disregard all of this and to carry on worshipping. It's, but you have to, I mean, you have to forgive, you have to understand, but common ground, talking people down, I think the opposite is taking place. I think the hysteria is increasing and I worry about it getting worse. Let's leave that for a moment because you touched on something else um, that I wanted to ask you about, which is kind of the the hands-on work you do. You know, you mentioned that um, the government has not taken away freedom to worship because you're still able to do a lot of things online. I've spoken to a couple of my friends, two of whom are, are deeply religious, and they say, and this is just, I'm not using them as a stand-in for anybody, but just because I wanted to ask the question, you know, they say, yes, we can worship online, but it it's not as essential to us as the in-person communion with the congregation. They're willing to risk it if the church opens, and they would like to risk it. And what have you seen over the past year in terms of what's different about worshiping online and what still needs to be done in person and and as a cleric, how you navigate that, I guess. Well, there is a middle road. I mean, my wife, for example, is a Roman Catholic and she goes to mass and things are done differently. Uh, all sorts of precautions are taken and the numbers are restricted, uh, but she does go. And that's relatively recent. The, the churches were closed for some time, but it depends on what is going on. Uh, in the Anglican diocese, and I, I don't speak for the church or the diocese, but in the Anglican, Anglican diocese of, of Niagara, where I serve, there is some opening for some services that are then recorded. But in my particular church, virtually everything is recorded online. They can't receive the Eucharist. They, they can't have that social interaction, the physical, the hugging and so on that they would have had otherwise, but they do understand. But we have chat rooms. We have a large church. We have Our numbers have, have gone up even, but we had... We had uh, I think 800 views of our, one, of, one of our services. But the service is put, is put on. We will speak beforehand. Then we'll break up into chat rooms, come back as a whole. We discuss. So we get as close as we can to what it should be. Do you feel fulfilled in the same way after those services? No, it's never the same. It, it cannot be. I, I, I'm, I'm Catholic in my theology as an Anglican. I miss the Eucharist the body of Christ. Of course I miss that. I miss the social interaction. I miss the tea and, and, and I mean, I'm an Anglican, you know, tea and cookies after the service. It's essential. <laughs> of course I miss all of that. I mean, no one can claim, oh, this is just as good. And if they do, they're not, I don't think they're being honest, but we're talking about uh, a virus, a pandemic that has reached yet again, a crisis point. People, you know, I was speaking the other day to and a journalist who hosted a lot of shows on this. And she spoke to a friend who was a frontline nurse because there was concerns about this particular 
vaccine. And she said, just take it. Whatever you can put in your arm, take it now. Because every day I'm looking at what is going on there. You don't know how bad this is. This is horrible. I mean, there, there are people who've been in hospital. There's someone I know in the UK who's, who's been in hospital for um best part of a year now. Wow. Yeah, I mean, this is this is very serious stuff. And that is why we're doing it. And God willing, things will begin to go back to normal after the summer, we, we hope. It's only temporary. What we have learned, though, is that when we do go back to normal, we can't abandon the electronic worship process. Churches need to expand. They need to get the, get the gospel message out there. There are people who've come to our church who, who, who communicate with me who in the past haven't. So I think that what's going to happen is when we have our, our live worship, as they were two years ago, say, uh, we will simultaneously have to make them available online because there are people who want that. So that's something, something good that will come out of it. But yeah, this is not better. Uh, it is a sacrifice. It can be painful, but it's essential. If you are a Christian, if you believe in loving your neighbor, even if you it, you could be vaccinated, you could never be ill, it doesn't matter. You could kill someone. You could hurt someone. You could take away someone's parent, their child, their, whatever. Um, we owe it to others. We owe it to our faith, if we're Christians, to do all we can to control the pandemic. And that means for a year and a half or whatever it may be, sacrificing something. Well, there are many Christians who sacrificed a great deal more. How does it make you feel that... Um you know, you're taking all the precautions that you've just described to me. Um, you're taking it extremely seriously, you know, uh, so is your church. And, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, you have people like me calling you up and say, explain why these Christians over here are doing this thing. <laughs> um, it's an entirely fair, it's an essential, in fact, an essential question. I'm fine with that. Um, I'm also fine with churches like this one in Edmonton, getting a lot of media exposure. People say to me, why, why are they always on, on being covered? Well, because media covers not the norm, but what is abnormal. It does that beyond religion, sort of war on religion. I mean, we don't look at a, a television news show and they're covering the, the, the story of someone who did, did the shopping, went home and had a nice dinner and went to sleep. That, no, that's not what they cover. It's, God forbid, that person is is, is attacked and, the, and their, their money is stolen and their house is, is destroyed. and so what we're seeing here is not coverage of the the vast majority of denominations and churches acting responsibly. It's those who don't. I understand. It's frustrating. It's always frustrating. Eh? With social media, people will say, oh, um, why are all Christians so right-wing? Well, I don't actually know any. All the ones I know are very left-wing. But it's what they're seeing covered in media. And and. So I'm just trying, I suppose, to to paint a broader picture. Yes, it's a bit frustrating, but um, there are worse things to be frustrated about. My last question is, is there a better way for governments or for the rest of the Christian community to handle something like what happened uh, at Grace Life? Did the government do the right thing? Should they have just come in even harder or should they just ignore them and hope that like, you know, I, I don't see any good results uh, from any of these ideas. Well, I, I'm in Toronto, not in Alberta, but I think Fair. You, you know, that there is a certain dynamic there, which does play in Ontario as well, more so with Jason Kenney, because Jason is a conservative Roman Catholic. Um, he does have in his government some uh, evangelical Christians who are very conservative. 
and he was certainly, certainly supported by the conservative Christian vote in Alberta, which is more significant than in any other part of the country. I think he was nervous at the beginning of alienating them. Perhaps he acted too slowly. Perhaps the church was given too much room. Um, later on, he realized he had to act. And at that point, he was quite draconian in what he did, but I don't think he had any option, really. I just think it should have happened earlier. I think it, to, 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 to give people the impression they were allowed to do certain things, it's then harder to take it away. So perhaps he should have been earlier, uh, stricter from an earlier point. Uh, but I think he has done the right thing. But the, the same applies elsewhere um, with Premier Ford in Ontario. Um, he's he's not being advised by Christians who are members of the United Church and progressive and embrace liberation theology. Those Christians he knows tend to be very conservative and they have a, they have a certain point of view. It's very hard to be consistent because we, there's different news coming in about the virus, about the numbers, and I do understand the difficulties of government. Um, but what I would say in Alberta, Edmonton, but also in the rest of the province is it's looked uncertain for too long. And uncertainty looks like weakness. And when people who are not always reasonable perceive weakness, then they don't act particularly well. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with us today. I'm really glad that we could get you on the line. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime. That was Michael Corrin, and that was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. In order to talk to us, and I assume some of you do after that episode, we are on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. Or you can just email us, TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. You can also find us in your favorite podcast player, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify. Doesn't matter, you can ask your favorite personal assistant to play The Big Story Podcast, and you'll get it. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.